Welcome, welcome. Make your way back in. Not sure how comfortable I feel about uh, you receiving a stone before I preach. Doesn't feel very comfortable to me right now to be the only one up here without a rock, but uh, I'll have a shield maybe I can use the guitar. So we are looking at Esther chapter three this morning. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Esther chapter three as we continue our series through this often neglected book. And as you turn there, just allow me to say a word of prayer over our time in the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your providence that you preserved this book for us and for this time and for our hearing today. And if someone is hearing my voice today, it is, uh, is because you desire it. This is a message that you have uh, prepared. And so I praise you for it and ask that we would all, myself included, come under subjection to your word, that it is a powerful word, that it is a relevant word, understanding that hundreds of years ago people preached from this passage and hundreds of years from now people will preach from this passage. Your word will remain living and active and we worship you for that. We stand humbled by that and we acknowledge that stories and illustrations and Words that I speak this morning won't have near the lasting impact and value that your word has. So allow us to cherish every word that we hear from you today, knowing that it is breathed out by you, preserved by you, and has the power to change us. So would you use your word today to change our hearts? And we pray that we would be discerning believers. Your Holy Spirit would give us discernment and teach us that we may be instructed as to how to know you well and love you more and serve you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been walking through the book of Esther. Uh, I confess, of all the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament, uh, I've probably cycled through Esther maybe three times in my 25 years as a believer. And that's not very good, you know, for somebody who has studied and, and, and read the Word a lot. And so this is my first time to tackle preaching a series through the book of Esther, but I have really enjoyed it. And I hope that you have too. We looked at chapter 1 a few weeks ago at the beginning of November, and we saw the negative example of what it means to walk in your sinful fleshly passions. That if you continue to feed the sinful passions that you have, then you will experience this negative life that Galatians describes as death. But if you feed your spirit, if you walk in the spirit, if you walk in the spirit of God, that if you allow him to speak to you and through you, then uh, you will experience life. We saw the week after that in chapter two, how God delights in using broken people, people who don't have it all together imperfect people, people who have been uh, broken and experienced heartache and pain. And this morning we're going to look at chapter 3, and I've tentatively called this waiting for an apology. And you may understand that more at the end. But waiting for an apology uh, is this idea that someone has wronged you, and you can wait for a long time for that person to apologize to you. And what you do in that waiting period makes all the difference. We're focusing on the, the bad guy, 
Haman in this chapter. You know, this book is a really good book. Uh, you've got four main characters, King Xerxes, you've got Mordecai, you've got Esther, and then you've got the bad guy, Haman. And just to refresh your memory, um, Esther becomes the queen, and Haman, the bad guy, wants to exterminate all the Jews in the Middle East. And Mordecai, Queen Esther's cousin, foils the plot, and at the end of the story, all the Jews are saved. And God's redemptive purposes continue while Haman and his entire family is executed. So this morning we read about the plot of Haman to kill all the Jews. Now if you didn't read ahead and I just spoiled it for you, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I I shouldn't have given you a, a, a spoiler like that, but I trust that you've all heard this story before. So let's look deeper into Esther chapter 3. The Bible says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. And just pause there. Right away it says, after these things. So just to refresh your memory, it's been a few weeks. You've probably had some turkey. Uh, you've probably done a lot of traveling and things over the last few weeks. But after these things, if you look back at chapter 2, Mordecai heard that Big Fan and some other guy were trying to kill the king. And so Mordecai told Esther, his cousin, to warn the king that these guys were going to assassinate the king. And so the king and his people uh, investigated, and then it was true. And so Mordecai saved the king's life. And so that's what after these things are. So after Mordecai saves the king's life, the king promotes Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him. And he set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And it just leads to the natural question, why did Haman get promoted? I mean, was it Mordecai? Didn't Mordecai foil the plot and save the king? Well, in some ways, the text hints that Haman the Agagite might have in some way stolen the credit for what Mordecai did. Have you ever had somebody in your workplace or, or maybe in your family life that they take credit for something that you did? Anybody ever had that experience? You land a big account or you do something positive at work or maybe you innovate something and someone else takes credit for that? We see that in some way Haman was elevated above everybody else in this chapter after Mordecai saves the king. And so there's something suspicious here. Verse 2, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And so the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So here we have... An extremely stubborn man. I know there are no stubborn men in the room uh, who would do this, but they were supposed to bow down on their knees to Haman, and they would all do so. So when Haman walks by, you see a sea of people 
bowing down, except for one guy stands out, right? He just, Mordecai stands there while everybody bows, heart proud, super stubborn, refusing to bow down at all, and in complete defiance against the king's command, particularly with this guy Haman. We don't get any... There's no sense in which the rest of the book that Haman is stubborn toward all authority. There's no way that we can see that in in Mordecai's life. He just seems like it's just with Haman. And so this bothers Haman. So look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So just pause here. Because the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus we read in chapter 1 verse 1 was India to Egypt or to Ethiopia. So that entire region of the Middle East all the Jews in this area were going to be killed because Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. And you think, well, this guy's got rage issues. There's, this guy has an anger problem, right? Yeah, he's got an anger problem, but this goes much deeper than that. Do you remember, uh, it says that Haman was an Agagite. And it says that, um, that Mordecai was a Benjamite. Now you... Uh, probably remember Agag, the Amalekites, and Israel, probably. But if you don't, let me just kind of refresh our memory. Um, Agag, whom Haman is a relative of, was an Agagite. Agag was a king of the Amalekites. Right? Remember way back when, when the, uh, the, the Jewish nation was traveling out of Egypt, the Amalekites... Exodus 17, the Amalekites came and fought with Israel. And do you remember this amazing story about while they were fighting with the Amalekites, there was this sort of supernatural military experience that was taking place where Moses, if he raised his hands, do you remember this scene? When Moses raised his hands, the Jewish nation, the Israelites, would defeat and win and make advances in the battle against the Amalekites. But as soon as Moses put his hands down, the fight would break out and the Amalekites would win. And this was this some sort of cosmic, spiritual, angelic battle taking place between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And you can tell that because Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16 gives you that impression that, that their victory was tied to their leadership and how Moses was raising his hands and all those things. And in the last chapter, Exodus 17 uh, verse 16 says, The Lord will war against Amalek for all generations, indicating that these were a spiritual people opposed to God at all time. So forward to the time of Saul, who was a Benjamite, in the same way that Mordecai was. 500 years before Mordecai, in 1 Samuel 15, hang with me, alright, don't, don't lose me here, I'm not, not going to go too deep here, but But uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, was sent on a holy war to wipe out and bring God's judgment on the Amalekites. Remember that story? 
He's supposed to go and he's supposed to annihilate them as an act of God's justice. To stamp out the wicked Amalekites who have been a violent and wicked people, an evil people. And so their sentence was coming. Saul goes to do that and he almost obeys. He wipes out most of the Amalekites, but he keeps the best of the spoil and he brings back who? He brings back Agag, right? Not a great name, but he brings back Agag. And, and so he comes back happy. Saul, is, he's got all the spoils. He wasn't supposed to have any spoils, but he's kept all the best of the Amalekites. And he's even brought back the king. And Samuel confronts him. And when Saul sees him in 1 Samuel 15, he says, Blessed be you to the Lord, for I have done and performed all the commandments of the Lord. Samuel confronts him and says, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, Well, we brought all these from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen so that they could sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Yeah, that's what we were going to do. We were going to sacrifice all the best. And so the rest of it we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me that night. And so the Benjamites lose the kingship forever because Saul disobeyed in this issue that was most precious to the Lord. He didn't stamp out fully the enemies of God. After rebuking Saul, you remember this grisly picture in 1 Samuel 15, 32 to 33, that Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And the scripture says, Agag came cheerfully to him. And Agag said to himself, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord and Gilgal. Interesting passage, right? He hacked him to death before the Lord as though this were some act of worship. But in truth, this was God's punishment against an evil people. And so now we fast forward 500 years later and we have a guy named Haman who's an Agagite and a guy named Mordecai who's a Benjamite. And these two know there's bad blood between their families. Haman knows that it was Mordecai's relative that stamped out most of their entire racial culture and heritage. And Mordecai knows that no Benjamite will ever be on the throne again, that his tribe was basically lost the kingship because of this guy, Agag. And I know we can't really understand this. We're not so much of a tribal people, but we do understand racism, right? I hear people say to me a lot, I wish we could go back to a better time in our nation's history. Maybe a, a time when it was more peaceful and it was better. And, and I always point out it was, it was nice if you were a white person. Not so nice if you were a minority. And so we understand these racial tensions that fuel hatred. 
You hate people. You understand Haman. You understand Mordecai. And so let's see where this hatred leads them. In verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots. This is basically like rolling dice. They're going to let the dice decide what happens and when it happens. So they roll the dice before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until they reach the twelfth month which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And so if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents, that's about 400 tons 400 tons of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. And they may put them into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite and the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do to them as it seems good to you. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all their goods. A copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people's To be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to have a drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It's a terrible passage in many ways, describing the progression that hatred and bitterness leads to something. And so my main point this morning is that bitterness will destroy you. You must love your enemies. My main point that bitterness will consume you, hatred will consume you, it will destroy you, and it will destroy those around you, and you must come to grips with loving your enemies. By the end of this message, you're going to see the destruction of Haman is directly tied to his bitterness and revenge and pride. And also, I want you to see that what you do with your hatred, your jealousy, your bitterness, your anger, may be one of the most important choices that you'll ever make. If you hold on to racial hatred, to personal hatred, to other types of hatred, it will destroy you. And it is one of the most important choices that you're going to make Today, So I hope you'll tune in uh, with me as we explore this idea. 
This is genocide on a mass level that we see here. Right? I mean, you see the thoroughness with which Haman is going to exterminate an entire people group. Think about all these other holocausts that have taken place in the life of God's people. Satan is constantly trying to thwart and stamp out the redemptive purposes of God. Who comes from the Jewish line 483 years after Haman? Jesus. Jesus comes. If Haman had been successful, there is no redemption. If Satan had allowed Haman to exterminate all the Jews, there is no Jesus, there is no church here. There is no building, there is no pew, there are no people of God. Satan is always trying to thwart the redemptive purposes of God and his entryway often starts with hatred. And so let me just ask you personally, who do you hate? Who do you hate? It's a good question. And you might say, Gibson, I'm a Christian. I don't hate anyone. I love everyone perfectly and the same with the love of Jesus that fills my heart. And so it leads to a better question. How do we fool ourselves into thinking that I love everyone perfectly with the love of Jesus? Maybe it leads to an even deeper and better question. How does hatred manifest itself in your life? In what ways are you blinded to your own hatred for other people? You know, hatred disguises itself. It hides itself. And so we fool ourselves into thinking that we don't hate people because it subtly expresses itself in devious ways in the life of a Christ follower. I'm not talking about if you're not a born-again believer. Um, I'm talking about if you are a Christian, if the love of Jesus has so filled you, if you've received His forgiveness, if you've received His grace, you've been forgiven of all your sins, and He has demonstrated His love toward you, and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you, loving His enemies perfectly, that Jesus has so loved you to the cross where you've experienced new life, and then shortly after you've experienced this new life, the longer you've walked with Christ, the longer you've walked in the church, the longer you've walked in the Bible, you see your heart tend to shrivel up when you're offended, and you experience feelings of hatred. For many of you, immediately you had somebody that you hate come to mind, but you don't feel like it's hate because it disguises itself. It hides itself. We know that we're supposed to love, right? The greatest commandment is to love, right? To love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as As yourself. We're supposed to love, and we know that. We're not supposed to hate. We know that. There are really just a few places where hatred is okay for the Christ follower. God hates wickedness and unrepentant wickedness. He hates Satan, uh, He hates sin, and He hates systems and people that cause sin. But what about our command to love? You have to love the Christ follower if you are a Christ follower. You must love your fellow church members. You must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no room for hatred at all. Not based on race. Not based on economics. Not based on social status. Not based, there is no 
room for hate in the church. There's no room for it. And so the burden is on you to love Christians and to not express hatred toward them at all. But hatred manifests itself in subtle ways. And so let me help you understand if you truly hate someone. It usually starts with an offense. Somebody offends you. It could be an unspoken expectation that you had of somebody and they didn't meet your unspoken expectation. Or maybe it was a flippant comment that somebody made. Or maybe somebody just was rude to you. Nine times out of ten, hatred manifests itself first in words. Something you said. Somebody has said something that bothers you. Somebody has offended you in some way. You took it personally. It wounded you. It hurt their words. Or maybe it was an action. And a terrible action that somebody committed against you. And and that offended you. Could be as subtle as a brushing off. Or as serious as an abusive relationship. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe it's an unspoken expectation. Whatever it is, you get offended. Which leads you to a lack of concern or negative feelings toward that person. Those are seeds. And then it might manifest itself in annoyance, jealousy, passive aggressive behaviors, undercutting, disrespect, pride, refusal to submit or follow or lead or listen to or acknowledge someone else. Those seeds will mature into sinful actions like gossip, bitterness, betrayal. They mature eventually to revenge, rage, violence, abuse, and murder. You say, come on, isn't that a stretch? I mean, Haman is trying to bring about a holocaust of a people group. So let me just say this really clearly. Hate fills the space you give it. You may not have the power to exterminate a people group, but hate will fill whatever space you give it, and you will express hatred in the ways in which you have the power to do so. Maybe it's an eye roll. Maybe someone says something to you and and you have experienced this hatred toward that person. Hate will manifest itself in your life based on the space you give it and based on the power and the authority and the control that you have to express it. Jesus said it leads to murder in Matthew chapter 5. It was a new experience for me when we moved from Oklahoma, where I'd lived for mostly 30 years, to Louisville, Kentucky, and then when we moved here. You live here. You're from here, probably. And let me just kind of give you an understanding of what I'm coming from. In Oklahoma, people hate people also. (laughs) Okay? But in, in the Northeast, people hate people also. Right? Hatred is a universal thing. But let me just kind of help you understand how it happens in the South. People hate you not to your face. <laughs> right? it's come, it comes out in things like, bless your hearts. You know, and, and they're sweet and syrupy, but as soon as you're not around, they, they will harbor bitterness and hatred. They just don't do it to your face. There's sort of a decorum that happens in public. 
But here, when we moved here, I experienced a refreshing reality that you know exactly where you stand with people immediately. You know, if you go to the South, if you honk your horn, it's a weird thing. People will look and say, what's with the rage monster, right? What's with the guy who beeped at me briefly because the light turned red and I didn't go? Turned green and I didn't go. But here, you know where you stand with people and it's refreshing, but it's also difficult. A few years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, I had an interesting experience. I had five people confess to me in a period of months how much they hated me, but now they liked me. Now, mind you, these, I was their pastor at their church, their associate pastor. And so as I was interacting with people and preaching and getting to know people and naively thinking that the church loves people, years later, as this new pastor of Ridgeline, I have people coming to me and saying to me, I used to really hate you. You just really bother. I didn't like this about you. I didn't like that about you. But now I really like you. I just want to let you know that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good to know. It made me, made me open my eyes to ways in which Christians foster hate toward other Christians. I learned that there's a basic hatred that goes with position. I never experienced hatred from the body of Christ until I became a pastor. <laughs> and in my first experiences as a lead pastor, uh, there was a handful of people, and I can't explain it, but I noticed that I hadn't heard a single word from this person in almost five months. Not a hello, not a hi, not a how are you. Despite the fact that I would initiate or bring up things, I just noticed in the life of this one particular person, just a coldness, a rudeness, a bitterness. I would say hi and wouldn't hear. It got to the point where it was almost like a game, but I became so prayerful about this. It consumed me until finally that person left. And it took a long time for me to understand that it was based on position. We were fine before I became a pastor. But once I took this position of leadership, I experienced hatred. You can experience hatred based on position. You might hate your boss for no other reason than this person is your boss. You can experience hatred based on personhood. Uh, You can experience hatred in many ways. Someone could be critical of you. Critical of everything you say. Critical of everything you do. They could just be outright angry with you. That they see your, your... body language when you come around. There's facial expressions and the way they hold themselves, the way they walk away. Maybe they give you the silent treatment. Maybe they undercut you with the words they say. There's no doubt in my mind that almost every person in the room has experienced the hatred of somebody else at some time. Or maybe you are the hateful person. Through all that, it was a really painful time. I went through several years where it was just hard. It was hard to deal with. It's hard to deal with it when you learn that you're hated. But what I learned was this. It was significant. I loved people who loved me really well. (laughs) I appreciated those who appreciated me, and it was love untested. Completely untested. 
But I learned that when I felt and experienced feelings of hatred, actions of hatred, I didn't really love very well. I was bitter. I was, uh, experienced hatred toward people. I withdrew a lot. I built walls. I, didn't want, I separated myself. I did all these things. And this was probably the most valuable experience to me in learning how to love your enemies. I learned that drinking uh, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. When you withhold forgiveness, when you hold on to anger and hatred and bitterness in your own life, you are destroying yourself. Holding on to your hatred will destroy you and those around you, just like it did for Haman. And by the end of the story here, ten years into the book of Esther, Haman goes from a normal guy to a dead guy with uh, all of his family and his sons and his children, everyone dead because of his bitterness and hatred. And if you want to see your heart shrivel and die... Hold on to hatred, bitterness, jealousy, anger for the next decade. Just hold on to it. Just encourage it. Give it space in your heart to grow. And watch what happens. Better yet, I don't want to watch what happens. I want to be far away from you if you are allowing hatred and bitterness to develop in your life. I'm primarily speaking to Christians, by the way. This message is for the Christ followers. Somebody who's been saved and baptized and said, Jesus loves you, but I hate you. (laughs) I'm jealous of you. I'm angry with you. I don't agree with you. And so I'm going to hold on to that. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not tax collectors and sinners do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers and sisters in Christ, what more are you doing to others? Don't even Gentiles do that? The idea is easy. You are supposed to hate enemies outside of Christ. That's just the natural instinctive reaction that we have. But in Christ, you should be defined by the way you love those who hate you. You should be defined by an overwhelming sense of love and affection and compassion for the people who hate you the most. If I ask the person that you hate how well they feel loved by you, what would they say to me? I'm going to close with how to love your enemies this morning. The first thing is to pray, pray, pray. Pray for yourself. When you detect the root of anger, bitterness, hatred, jealousy in your heart, pray fervently for yourself, for God to change your heart. And then pray for the person to whom you are experiencing those feelings of hatred. Pray. Two, forgive them fully and forget about it. I experienced a time when I was dealing with extreme hatred toward my own father for some things that happened in my childhood and in my high school life. And I, I can't really go into all the whole story. I just don't have time. But, but I'll never forget the words of my mentor, Jim Lang, as a 17-year-old who said to me very clearly, you have to forgive him and you have to forgive him tonight. 
He said, you become like the person you are most bitter toward. How do you think they became the way they are? They held on to their own bitterness and became bitter as well. Hurt people hurt people. They just can't help it. And they hurt people because they were hurt and they held on to their hatred and anger and bitterness. I'll never forget that. And Jim led me through these steps of expressing forgiveness. Number one, because Jesus commands it. Number two, because if you hold on to it, it'll destroy you. But he led me through these steps. He said, Gibson, take a piece of paper, write down everything that person has ever committed against you. All the things that you're holding on to. And so I wrote them all down and I got to 10 or 12 things and the list just... I just ran out of things to say. At that point, I was being petty. And, and then he said, now, after you've done that, take a piece of paper, write it on the same column there next to it, all the offenses that you have committed against God. Just a list. And I started to write. And the longer I got uh, into my life, I just realized I was, I, my column was too long. It was pages of sins that I committed against God. And at the end of it, he said, and at the bottom of that, I want you to understand that Jesus fully, freely, completely forgave you. And he commands you to forgive them. And he read me the parable about the the two um, men whom the the master had forgiven of their debts. And one went out and, and he held it against the other one. And he said, you must forgive. Forgive fully and forget. Pray, forgive. The third thing might seem counterintuitive, but it's re-engage relationally but carefully. Re-engage relationally but carefully. For those of you who've been abused in the room, for those of you who your husband physically abuses you, mentally abuses you, for those uh, who abuse their children, for those who abuse, for those who are violent, for those in whom this room you've been deeply affected, this will be a breath of fresh air because forgiveness doesn't always mean re-engaging fully relationally. Jesus said in Matthew 7, don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Proverbs 4.23 says to guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Forgiveness doesn't mean justifying bad behavior. And if your husband hits you, if your father hits you, if you're abusive toward your husband, if you're abusive toward your wife or to anyone else, toward your employees or toward other employers, that behavior is not excusable in any way. If you've been the recipient of abuse, the command for you is to forgive your abuser, but that doesn't mean that you're saying their behavior is okay. And you have the permission of Jesus, right? This is a permission slip from Jesus that you can forgive them fully and re-engage relationally, but carefully. There's no reason for you to fully relationally put yourself under abusive behavior. There are many ways out, but you must re-engage relationally but carefully. The fourth thing is to refuse to sin as you deal with your feelings of hatred. Just refuse it. 
I once heard a story, and the quote is hard to trace back, but it basically comes from this um, New England book, this book from England, I'm sorry, from the mid-1900s, that describes the three levels of communication. Weak people talk about people, better people talk about events, and some people talk about ideas. And I'm not saying that's right or gospel or true or not, but it does say something about our proclivity toward gossip and tearing people down with their words. Refuse to sin as you deal with your feelings of hatred. The the most common way that you hate people is with your words. In this church, in this body, in these two churches together, you harbor hatred toward other people. And it expresses itself most clearly in gossip and in backbiting and in undercutting and in devouring each other with your words. You take pleasure in their pain. (laughs) When something bad happens, you find yourself saying, good, they had that coming for what they did to me. Or they get something, or there's a blessing in their life, and, and you don't feel joy toward them. You, rem- you sort of withdraw. There's a sense in which you're happiest when they're hurting. And when they're happy, you refuse to rejoice with those who rejoice. Isolating, ignoring, disrespecting, avoiding. It's the most wicked thing you can do that if you know your brother has something against you to remain isolated. I don't understand how church people don't talk to other church people for a decade or more. I don't believe that you know Jesus if you hate someone in this church in the body of Christ. I don't believe you. The fifth thing, acknowledge that Jesus loves them passionately. You know, Jesus loves something and you don't, you are at odds with Jesus. (laughs) I had a guy tell me how much he hates singing the words projected on the screen rather than the words in a book. What if Jesus likes people singing to them, to him, words on a screen? <laughs> if you find yourself hating things that Jesus loves, you might just find yourself on the outside of Christ. <laughs> Jesus loves them passionately. And if you're expressing or experiencing hatred and fostering it, if you hang on to your hate while Jesus maintains his love and commitment to that person, you find yourself as the enemy of Jesus. Five simple things. Pray, forgive, re-engage relationally but carefully, refuse to sin as you deal with your feelings of hatred, And acknowledge that Jesus loves them passionately. If you do those things, you will find the root of hatred being removed from your life. Probably the greatest thing we see in this is that Jesus loves his enemies. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He passionately loves his enemies. And so if you're struggling with hatred, your greatest resource is Jesus himself who can usher you into love and compassion and forgiveness toward those you hate the most. In closing today, it's my hope and prayer that you will pull out the deep root of hatred, bitterness, jealousy, and anger from your life. Because you will not experience the blessing and the union of Christ so long as you harbor hatred for what He loves. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word today. As hard as it is to hear and as difficult as it is to process It's my prayer that today many of us have acknowledged that there is hatred in our own hearts. That we despise those we should love and that we treat terribly those to whom we're called to express love to. I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to repent of the wickedness of our sin of hate. We may not end up like Haman exterminating an entire people group but we will continuously tear at the fabric of your body when we harbor hatred toward other believers. Would you forgive us? There's a world watching us. No wonder they don't want to be a part of us. No wonder they don't want to come into our worship rooms to experience the quote-unquote love of God when we can't love each other. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us. Help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. In Jesus' name, amen.